are starting Parshas Bishalach, chapter 13, verse 17. What? So, so, so let's, let's maybe reframe it. How about that? Chapter 13, verse 4? Verse 17. We make more bad decisions. So how, let, let, let's try my reframing and then see if you buy my challenge, okay? Beseder, we're starting, this is the book that discusses Exodus. So, if the, if the Parsha of Shemos deals with descent into Gullus. It goes, right? We're going into exile. The whole slavery situation, okay? Va'era, we start to beat back the Egyptians. We're starting the process of redemption. It's starting to move. Bo, last week, yada, we're out of there. It's a parsha of Gula. And maybe Bishalach is how do we live with Gula? And I think it's a much harder thing to do than we imagine. And Lila raises a very, very, very good point. Like, what's up with the complaining? And if you're going to complain, you're complaining to the wrong person. Like, why complaining to Moshe and Aaron? Why are you not complaining to Hashem? Okay, so let's look at the Parsha. By the way, I'm kind of confident that we're going to be able to finish the Parsha because my husband took a big chunk yet this week. So we don't have to deal with the, pretty much with the crossing of the sea. So we're good about that. Um, okay, so, uh, so here we are. The Parsha Bashalach. Paro sends out the nation. So the first thing that we're getting is just a funny reference that Hashem does not take them through the lands of the Philistines, because it's close. Kiamar, because Hashem says, right, perhaps when they are faced with war, they will um, have regrets and they will go back to Egypt. Okay? So why are they armed? Okay, so... We're going to get there, but I want to just say something else to sort of follow up this thought. In this parsha alone, we have three references to war. There are three references to war. This is the first one. Oh, we can't go that way because if they see war, they're going to be, you know, they're going to like turn around and, and turn tail and run back to Egypt. Okay, that's the first time. The second time we have a reference to war is when they're at the border, no, not the border, when they're at the sea, mm-hmm. right, when they're at the, at the Reed Sea, and, um, and, you know, we had a little bit, that power comes to chase them, blah, 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 blah whatever, right, um, but at the, at the sea, we have this situation where they are freaking out, right, yes, mm-hmm. right, because the sea is in front of them, the walls are on the side, the mountains are on the side of them, and they're like, ah, we're going to die, <laughs> Right, um, and what and what does Moshe say over there in chapter fourteen, verse fourteen? Moshe says that is our second reference to war. Is Hashem yilachem lachem v'atem tacharishim? God will fight for you, and you be silent. Okay, so that's our second reference to war going on over here. And at the end of the parsha, did anybody get to the end of the parsha? I haven't even read the parsha. Amalek. Amalek. At the end of the parsha, we have a war with Amalek. So we have in this very parsha, we have. Oh, let's not go that way because we don't want them to encounter war. We have the place where there is a conflict and they're being told God's going to deal with this case. And then we have the war with Amalek. And if you actually looked at it inside, the Jews are definitely going to do the fighting. But Moshe is going to be up on the mountain with his hands outstretched in prayer, sort of doing his part for it as well. What's Bashalach actually mean? Bashalach, when he sent. Okay. Okay. Shalach is to send. Bishach when he sent. Okay. So the three references that we have to war here all seem to be like not. It's, it, there's a place. Well, they are war. There's avoiding war. There's war. But there's also the place of, of sort of understanding that the people are not ready for this position. They are not ready to go for war, to go to war for themselves with their own power. Okay, that's only going to happen in forty years when the Jewish people are going to go into the land of Israel and they have to conquer it. And that, by and large, with the exception of Jericho, is going to be a, rack, a, a regular, normal war. We're going to be stronger. They're going to be there. We'll have tactics. We'll have stuff. We'll have all this kind of stuff. Okay, so um, so just you know, because he keeps going back to this place of the parsha being personal personal um, personal ga'ula as well, not just, oh, once upon a time that was the case. I think that it's something that we also have to look at for a second because we do know that this, this context of war 
is something that we encounter all the time. We encounter challenges. We encounter things that are obstacles. We encounter, you know, all those words, all those things that I don't have to tell them. We all know them. We all know what's going on. We all know the things that we say, oh, this time I'm going to do it differently and all that kind of situation. So they're in our own journey towards liberation. And it's not only ultimate, but in any situation that we're in, there are going to be stages. There's going to be the, there's going to be the first stage of don't go there. Don't get involved. Just circumvent that area so that you don't go to that space. Rabbi, uh, not, I was going to say Rabbi, Professor Green, Professor Phil Green always talk, told the story when he was starting to keep kosher and his route to work helped, you know, went by a bakery that he stopped every single day and he bought stuff there and now he's going kosher and he was going and he said to his rabbi, it's so hard and da da da. And the rabbi's like, change your route. Don't walk by the bakery every single day, right? Like, there are, there are times in our lives as we're encountering a new challenge or as we're saying, I want to deal with this, we need to figure out how do we change our route? How do we avoid this situation? How do we not put ourselves in that place because we're not ready for that fight? That's the first thing I'm telling to telling people. Let's just avoid this whole situation completely because they're not strong enough for that. And then there's going to be a place where, they're, where it's not just avoid it. You're going to be in a situation and you're going to say, Hashem has to fight this one for me. We're so reliant on Hashem, and it's not a bad thing. We're going to stay reliant on Hashem, but there's a place where we're going to be reliant on Hashem. We're going to say, we're going to say, Abishter, you got to help me. I can't do this. I can't do this. You got to help me. And that's a different stage. And it's going to happen with every mitzvah that we start to do and every challenge that we have. And then there's a place at the end of our parsha where we actually are going to do the war ourselves. But we know that Moshe's up there getting. He has our back. And he's making sure. And until we get to that stage of like, we're never really doing it on our own. I want to just preface that. We're never actually fighting the war on our own. Even when the Jews are going to go into Eretz Yisrael and they're going to have tactics and they're going to have strategy and they're going to have spies and the whole shebang, there's still a lot of element of Hashem helping. But the obvious Moshe standing there praying for them is not going to actually be there. They're going to have to be going out and doing it on their own. And that really is something that we need to think about for ourselves. You know, as we're, you know, sort of going through our space and going through our time. Where do I need to maybe change my routine a little bit? Where, do I, where am I constantly putting myself in the face of a challenge that I am not yet ready to conquer? And can I do something about that? And sometimes it's something where, Hashem, please help me. And, but I think like it's something that we actually need to think about as well and, think, and, and understand that Hashem was looking at the people and saying, there are stages. There are stages in our development as people. There are stages in our development as our, in our relationship with Hashem. As our Hashem is getting stronger, we're able to tackle more things and bigger things, and we should be aware of it. And it's not a failing, chas v'shalom, if we're like, I'm going to just change my route so that I don't pass the bakery. It's not a failing. It's just being a smart person and saying, why do I have to put myself in this position every single time, whatever our version of the bakery is? You know, why do I have to do this myself over and over and over again? That's not being super smart. Let's figure out another way to deal with the situation. And then there's sometimes you just can't avoid the situation. We all know that. We all, everybody has in their lives, there are situations you just can't avoid, whether they're people, whether they're the situations, it doesn't matter. Okay, so now how do we deal with them? And that's going to be the next part of the conversation that's going on over here. So that's the first thing I wanted to talk about, this idea of what's going on and what's happening. Just an interesting thing that the, that the Gemara talks about was that what was one of the things, there's many, many things, but what are just, what was Hashem afraid of what the people were going to see? And one of the things that they talk about is that 40 years before the Exodus, many members of the tribe of Ephraim who had miscalculated when the Gullus was supposed to end, when the ex, when the ex- was supposed to end, they had some kind of breakout and they, they fled Egypt and the Philistines came down from the north and slaughtered them all. And their bones were still there and they were... Hashem didn't want them to see like, that that sort of jailbreak didn't work out so well. Interesting side uh, tangent to that story. We know in Ezekiel we have the, ta- the, the, the prophecy of the Valley of the Dry Bones, and most of the commentators agree that it was those bones of the people who left Egypt early, the tribe of Ephraim, that he resurrected and, um, 
and here's the, like, because they did not actually leave Egypt with the Jews, they did not have a biblical obligation to go to the Beis HaMikdash for Pesach. It was because it's connected to, to, to leaving Egypt. Just random fact information, like, now you got it. I don't know what you do with it, but I'm just saying. Um, I, I guess... used it to Google it, and I was like, Okay, fantastic. Okay, so they're not, so they're not going that way. Then they do this little thing. They look like they're lost. The Egyptians come flying out after them because Pharaoh, short-term memory loss, forgot that, oh, this was a bad idea to hold on to these people. And so we go. We have the final showdown at the sea. And, um, okay, if we go back for a second to that, um, that you know, to highlight Lila's uh, point, okay, if you take a look in chapter 14, it's the second, it's in the middle, it's the beginning of the second, the second Torah reading, in chapter 14, verse 11, so the people notice the Egyptians coming from behind them, they have the water in front of them, and, and, they, and they cry to Moses, and they're like, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you're taking us into the desert to die? What did you do to me? What did you do to us? Why did you take us out, right? Um, didn't we say this? Why, you know, we'd rather just stay in Egypt and work the Egyptians and, you know, what are we doing? So Moshe says, and in his answer to them, he, what? He says, no, it's interesting. He says to them, he said, first of all, he says to them in, in uh, verse 13 and 14, so Moshe answers, and the Rebbe explains that he's really talking to four different groups of people. He says to the people, Al-Tiru, do not be afraid. His yatsu uru as Yeshua's Hashem. Stand and see the salvation of Hashem. Asher yasa lachem hayom, as he's going to do to you today. Ki asher isim es mitzrayim hayom, lo tosifu lo tosifu You're never going to see the Egyptians like this again. Hashem yelachem lachem, God will fight for you. Atem tacharishon, and you should be silent. The Rebbe talks about that this answer is talking to four different groups of people at the banks of the, at the Reed Sea. There was the one group who were like, let's go back to Egypt. Forget about it. We can't win. We're not going to do this. It's, just go back and be slaves. Then there are the other people who said, we're, we're, we are not going back to Egypt. We cannot win. We're going to jump into the water. And we're going to commit suicide. We're not going back. Then there was another group that said, and, and the other group that said, we're going to fight them. It doesn't matter. As many as we're going to take down, we're going to go down fighting. And he says, Hashem is going to fight for them. And at Tem Tacharishun, there was a group that said, we're going to just pray to Hashem. And Moshe's like, be quiet. This is not the time for prayer right now. And the next Aliyah, and it's very interesting to you that it's in a separate Aliyah, comes Hashem's answer. Hashem says to the people, and he says to them, why are you all screaming to me? Dabra <laughs> Israel, speak to the Israel, Vaisau, keep moving forward. Whatever you're supposed to be doing, Keep doing what you're supposed to be doing. Um, now, it's very helpful when you're in such a situation that you have a Moses that says, our next step is Sinai, that's on the other side of this, this, this ocean. It was an ocean. The other side of this river? Water. Body of water. water. It's a body of water. Sea. Is it a sea? This yeah. sea of reeds? Okay. I don't It's not as big as... Whatever. It's, it's bigger than... Well, it's actually the Hebrew translation from Yam Suf is the Sea of Reeds. No, I know, but I'm saying the, the location. The location. Okay. I was told it might not be the location of the Red Sea. Obviously, <laughs> two Jews, three opinions. Of course, it might not be the location. Maybe Rachel isn't buried there. Everything's, maybe, everything, everything's up for grabs. But, um, um, da, 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 da. what was I saying? Bed of water, Hashem. Keep going. Right. So Moshe says, we need to go to Sinai. It's in that direction. Hashem's like, just keep moving. You can't go right. You can't go left. You're not going backwards. So just go forward. And then we had the conversation. You have my husband about Nachshu goes into the water and the water splits, blah, 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 right? But I want to stop out for a second. And there are, and I want to look at us and say, there are times that we are facing, again, back to our Gaula space, we are facing a sea in front of us that is insurmountable. And we have challenges on the right and challenges on the left and in the back. And we feel beyond stuck. We feel like there's no place for us to go. All of the options are bad. All of the options are bad. And, um, and, and there is a place. There is a place, really, 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 there is a place sometimes to say, like, we, we can't fight the world. Like, we're going to sort of just go along with it. The suicide we talk about is like, we're going to just 
shut ourselves off from the world and not have anything to do with the world because it's dangerous and it's scary and it doesn't support our values. And there is a place. Somebody's got to fight the wars and say, how dare you say that about Jews on the social media? I'm going to call you a racist in public and have all my friends boycott your stuff, right? And there is a place for prayer. Really, really, we have all of those things. But ultimately, the most important thing that we really need to know is right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot. What do we need to be doing? What do we need? Where's our destination? Where are we headed? And is our, any of these options, are they helping us get to where we need to go? Or are they distractions? And we can call them holy distractions, but they're still going to be distractions. Meaning, for, is it my job right now to fight the wars on social media? It might be, and it might not be. It depends on my ability and my whatever, all different kinds of stuff. But if it's taking away time from what I know I need to be doing, and it's, all this stuff is distracting me, all these good things, oh, I have to sit and dive in now for 10 hours, and I have to do like, all, they're all good things. I'm not knocking them. Really, don't take it that I'm knocking them, even if I sound it. There's a place for everything. There's a time for everything. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, right here, right now, is this the time for this? Is this the place for this? Or do I just need to keep, or do I just need to keep moving? And you're right. It's so much easier and Moshe's there and he's like, guys, that's the direction we got to be heading in. Because so many times our issue is we don't know if we're doing the right thing. Maybe we should be doing something else. Maybe there's another thing we're supposed to be doing. Maybe, 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 maybe. So we need to sometimes go back to our, spell, to our space and a quiet space and really figure out where it is that we need to be going. Where is my redemption place? Where, what is my next space? And am I taking steps to get there? Because if this is what I want to do, if this is what I want to be, you know, am I putting anything in my toolbox that's going to help me get to what I want to be? And, you know, I, I, know I, I know I make fun of five-year plans, but if this is the goal of what I want to be later on in my life, am I doing anything to get there? Or am I just spending all my time in prayer, which is great, but it's not practical and it's not going to give me any tools that I need for where I need to be. So I want to put that there for a second for us to think about and to, for us to, yeah, mull over a little bit. I think it's good food for thought. You know, what is our direction? Are we move, being proactive in getting to that space or are we sort of getting distracted? Okay, a couple of fun facts about the crossing of the sea, which we are not going to get into. Hopefully not the stuff that you got, we, did with, we did with my husband. Some other stuff. Um, uh, so, according to the Medrash, uh, the sea did not split once. The, splice, this, the, splice, the, split. the sea split 13 times. Okay? And the sea did not split in a straight line, but the sea split kind of in a rainbow shape. Okay, and all the tribes went through in their own path. Okay, now because you've already learned all this with my husband, it makes sense when we say, wait a second, if we have a rainbow shape, that means we come out essentially where we went in. <laughs> if, okay, if you say we crossed in a straight line, if we cross it a straight. If you cross it a straight line, we're crossing the sea. You come back on land. We're going over there. We cross to the sea. We get on the other side. Okay, now we're in the Sinai Desert. But this is not actually what happens. If they, if they do this, they do this. Okay, you end up on the same side. Here's our sea of reeds. Here's our sea of reeds. Here's Sinai. Okay, this is where we're going. Here's Sinai. We're over here. I have, I failed stick figures. Okay, remember that. Okay, we're over here. Egypt's there. We got mountains here. Here's the, here's the water. If we cross like this. Yeah. Then we end up here. Yeah. But what if we did this? What? Okay, so we went in here and we came out over here. Now, the reason it would make sense to you. Well, there's also conversations. Was it at the end? It could have been at the end of it so that you end up semi circling but not coming right. back to the exact same place. Jury's out about that. But the message seems to be quite consistent that it was sort of a regular thing. Because you learned about what was the point of crossing the sea, you understand that the crossing the sea is never about the definite about the destination. The point of the crossing of the sea was the crossing of the sea and the revelation that was going to happen over there. It wasn't about what was going on. Okay, I bring this here so how to. How did they get to Sinai? They would all take their stuff. They would oh, go no. <laughs> 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 Right. What do you say? 
right? I feel like it's the people need sad faces because they're looking They're not sad faces, they're blank. They're just not sure what they're supposed to be doing, okay? They tell a story about a kid who comes home and, he's, and he tells his mother that they learned about crossing the sea and all the people came with their boats and they ferried them across and there was like, it was a lot of people and it took all night and the mother's like, really? He, she, he's like, you would not believe the story they told us. I would <laughs> so, like to agree to disagree because I... Okay. I want to. I want to. You can. You funky can. Funky vibes. You can give me funky vibes. It's fine. You can check it up in the medrash. I don't care. I'm not making this up. Where would you? I always tell you when I make things up. Look at the medrash. Says it's gonna be right there. Um, why is this important? Why is this important? It's important to us for a few reasons. First of all, anybody who says there is one way to have a relationship with God is talking at a place that is not positive. Okay. The fact is. Torah acknowledges that there were 12 tribes and there were other people who came through who did not have a tribe. And they all had to do this crossing. They all had to have that revelation at Sinai. And it's all going to be similar and different. And when we look at some... So first of all, when somebody says, my way to have a relationship with Hashem is the only legitimate way, you know it's not true. There were 12 paths, 13 paths, for the people to come through. And every single person and every single tribe had their way to go through. There was a place, another place for everybody else. And it's, the, the, the Medrash talks about how you could see between that. It was actually clear. And you could like see, the people could see each other in the other aisles. Not aisles, whatever they're, ch- tunnels, channels, I don't know, whatever it was, right? Um, so that's one thing that I wanted to say. The other thing I want to say is that in a semicircle or in a rainbow, Essentially, you have some people who have this and some people who have this to get from point A to point B. And we say, but that's not fair. Why do they have a little thing and why do they have a longer thing? And we have no idea. Now, the tire tells they all went in and came out. Like, it's, it's not like, oh, those people came so much later, right? We have no idea what anybody's journey is like. And when we look at somebody else and we say, but their journey seems to be like that little tidy inner semicircle of the rainbow and they have no struggles and they have no challenges. And look at us, we have such a long way to go. Relax. Everybody has issues. Everybody has stuff. Everybody's Avedis Hashem is their own journey and challenge and, and destination. And it's not even about the destination. It's 100% about the journey. And so the reason that I bring this here is because I think it's so important for us to understand there are multiple paths to have a relationship with Hashem. There are some really interesting options as well, but I'm talking about within, <laughs> within uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, halachic, halachic, huh? Rainbow. <laughs> the halachic rainbow. Within the halachic rainbow, there are lots of ways to have a relationship with Hashem. It doesn't have to only look like this. It doesn't have to only look like that. There's all kinds of things that are going on, and we have to understand that wherever we are in our journey, God knows where we are. He, he found us. He knows where we are. He knows where we're going. He knows how to get us, how we got there, all that kind of stuff. Stella. Um, so it does not say that it's split into a rainbow, but it does say that it's split into um, 12 passages for the tribes. Okay. And someplace else it talks about it being a semicircle. I will find it for you. This is, not the, this, is, this is the easiest definitive way to look, but it's not the only way. Okay? This is a compilation the measure says. Okay. The Seder. I will get back to you on that. Okay, so then they go through. We have Moshe doing his thing. People go through. Okay. Chapter 15. Okay? We have, this is part of our davening. Even till today, we have Az Yashir, Moshe Bnei Yisrael. We have uh, the song that Moshe and the Jewish people sing at the... Sing, it's chapter 15. Okay, it starts from chapter 15, yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, in the Torah, in the Torah, it's written in poetry form. Most of the Torah is just written like this, with very little spaces, and Azyashir is written in two columns, with lots of white space around. It's written as a song, it's given as a song. Uh, it's very long, it's part of the davening, it's, we say this before Yishtabach, and if, I don't know, in your Siddur, but in my Siddur, sorry, my Chobosh, definitely is giving it in some kind of interesting formation. Um, to, to show that it is written as a, as a uh, thing, as a it's poem. It's really intended to be read as like a poem and a song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, so the, so the rabbis asked the question, how was this song 
how did this song happen? And so they have three different versions in good Jewish, good Jewish uh, tradition. Tradition, one option, I don't remember which rabbi's quoted, which one rabbi says that Moshe said line by line, there are 44 verses here, Moshe said the first line, and everybody said, um, Ashir el Hashem, we'll sing Tashem. So Moshe says, Ashir el Hashem ki and everybody said, Ashir el Hashem. Okay, so they basically, it was a response to his thing. Another opinion is that he said a line, and they said a line. He said a line, and they said a line. We could get that part, right? And the other, the other, uh, the other rabbi says, Moshe started to say it, and everybody spontaneously came up with the same prayer. Okay? And when we talk about levels of unity, the Rebbe uses this as an example for how is unity really achieved. Is unity that the force of one person takes over everything else? And we just say, yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Is that real unity? Eh, it's, it's questionable. I mean, it serves its purpose for now, but nobody internally has actually, you know, changed. They're just agreeing because of the force of what's going on around them. The, the place of every, everybody repeating after Moshe is a place where they hear it, they internalize it. They're not just spitting it back. They're giving it back the same words, but with their own flavor. Okay, similarly to the idea of how we each do mitzvahs and they all look the same, but they're all different, right? So there's this place of they hear it, they internalize it, and then they give it back in their own tone, inflection, whatever. Um, and the third thing is, is the unity so deep that we all intrinsically had the same experience and would come up with the same words to describe that experience? Meaning, Moshe will start them off, and everybody is so in tune with the event and with each other that their own words they hear echoed all around them. And I think like there are times in our life for all of those things. There are some times where it's okay to say we're gonna like, you know, we're gonna just follow, we're gonna follow the leader a little bit. And sometimes it's the place of hearing, internalizing, and giving it back without being so innovative and creative on our own, and yet there's a place also where can we also be so united that our, our vision is actually shared in such a deep way, which is what would be the ultimate unity. I don't know how practical it is for us to achieve on a daily basis, but perhaps at sometimes we could call that up, and then maybe it's not needed for a daily basis behavior, but it's definitely something to have in our toolbox of something uh, to have. Okay. I'm not getting into this for much longer. I want to go to chapter uh, 15, verse 20 and 21 and 22, 20 and 21. When the, when the men finish their song, what do we have? Lila, read. 20. Uh, Miriam, the prophetess, sister of Aaron, took the drum in her hand, and all the women went forth after her with drums and with dances. Miriam spoke up to them, sing to Hashem, for he is exalted above the arrogant, having hurled horse with its rider into the sea. Okay. We have, another, we have a situation over here where we have a second shira that's going on, a second song that's happening. We have the song of Miriam and the, and the women. So Rashi wants to know when is Miriam called a Nevi'ah? When is she called a prophetess as she's the sister of Aaron? And that is with the birth of Moshe, where she told her parents that the, you were going to give birth to the Redeemer. And how she stood it, she watched him at the, at the, at the banks of the, of the river. Um, that's just a side thing. When we want to know what the highlight of any Parsha is, we look to the Haftorah. Okay? And if you look to the Haftorah of Parsha's Beshalach, we have, the pro- we have the song of the prophetess Devorah. Okay? It was the, the, the war that they had, and we have that thing. Which means to say that even though Miriam and the women's song is a one-liner, somehow it's going to trump the 44 verses that the men said. And everybody wants to know why. What's so special about what's going on at the women's, at the women's shira? Parenthetically, we read this Parsha twice. We read it now, and we also read it on Pesach. So the Haftorah Pesach is a different Haftorah. It's the Haftorah of David HaMelech. Okay, of King David. But here we're highlighting the place, the, 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 the something about the women. And there's all different kinds of things. And one of the things that the Rebbe talks about is 
Well, I've, a lot of people talk about it. they did it. We know that Miriam was called Miriam because why was she called Miriam? Uh, bitter, bitter, right? Because she was born in the the deepest part of the bitterness of the Gullus. She's about five years older than Moshe. She's three years older than Aaron. She was born. It was a terrible, terrible time for the Jewish people. Um, and there was some place her role as leader, mentor, prophetess. She was with the people all the time. All through the exile, she was with them. And when they watched their babies thrown into the Nile, and when they watched their babies be put into the pyramids, she said, it's going to end, and we're going to be joyous, and we're going to have reason to say thanks. And when they were packing up their houses, Miriam sent out the WhatsApp message. Ladies, keep your instruments in hand luggage. We are going to need it. We do not know when, we do not know how, but we have not gone through this exile and suffered so much for nothing to happen. There's going to be something amazing and awesome and beyond comprehension, and we're going to want to thank Hashem. We don't know when it's coming, we don't know what it's going to look like, but we do know that it is coming. Be ready, be ready. And the fact that the women were there with musical instruments elevates their shira above the men. It's almost like the men were like, Oh my gosh, that was awesome. We should sing Shira. We should praise Hashem. And then we were like, duh, of course, we were going to have to praise Hashem. Like, yalla, let's, let's get this party going. Like, we have all this stuff that we need. So it wasn't the length of the words. It was more the, it was more the, the intention and the, prep, the prepared, preparedness. Is that a real word? Yeah. The preparedness that they had anticipating that there were going to be great miracles. And the Rebbe spoke many, many times that this generation is the reincarnation of the souls that, went to, that were in Egypt and that all the women are the reincarnation of the women who left Egypt. And so we have to anticipate that great, amazing, beautiful things are going to happen. We're going to want to, spend, we're going to, want to thank Hashem. We're going to want to sing and dance, enjoy, because after everything we've been through in the last 2,000 years, we are going to have to, whatever is coming has to have made that all worth it. It's not going to just be like, oh, well, da-da-da, let's go to Katsefet, right? It's, <laughs> it's going to be, in our house, that's what we said, we're going to get to that, right? Um, uh, it's going to be something so amazing, and we, we're, it's okay that we're going to be caught unprepared for what it is going to be, but it will not be okay if we, become, if we come unprepared, ready to give thanks. And I think that's something that we have to really, you know, go through, to be ready to give thanks to Hashem. And, we, and the way we are ready, this is my own take, take it or leave it, practice giving thanks on a regular basis. Yes, we daven and we give thanks, but the place where we say something good happened to us, I always use this as an example, and people laugh at me, well, that's what happens when you take buses. You get to the bus stop, and the bus pulls up one minute later. Thank you, Hashem. Thank you, Hashem. Like the fact that, you know, I didn't have to run like a crazy person for the bus. The fact that I didn't miss the bus. The fact that I didn't have to wait for an hour for the bus. All of those, thank you, Hashem. We need to train ourselves to say thank you for all the things, the big things and the little things, because it's getting us ready for the ultimate thank you when this gullus is over and we're able to just sing and dance. And we're not going to, you know, somebody once said to me, it's so interesting, like, that Israeli kids give brachas very easily. You know, and I said, because they have a lot of practice. They start from when they're in school and in their three-year-old gun. Somebody has a birthday party and they say, and now everybody's going to give Lila a bracha. Now everybody's going to give Stella a bracha. Like that's what happens. Everybody gives brachas to each other from a very, very young age. And we should practice it. I know I do it a lot. I think it's something we need to practice. We need to practice being grateful. We need to practice giving brachas. We need to practice being ready for amazing, amazing, amazing miracles. So l'chaim to that one. Questions, comments? Okay, but I'm going to keep going. Okay. Um, okay, so then the Torah tells Moshe has to move the people away. And they get to, in, chap- in, verse, in chapter 4, still, chapter 15, verse 23, they come to Marasa. They could not drink the water because it was bitter, and therefore the place is called Mara. Okay? So, Vayelainu Ha'am El Maisha. I was like, hello, you're talking to another person. And they go to Maisha, they say, What should we drink? They're a bit They are a bit fetchy, but I want to, I, I, you know. I just, they just got off slavery. I think they should be a bit more grateful. So, so I want to say, I want to say something, okay? We're going to have, I want to just say something. You're right. Yes and no. Because if this Parsha is learning to live with freedom, 
we have to for a second pause and say what's going on. Okay? Go to the, the verse, go to verse 22. Moshe takes the people from the Yamsuf. They go into the desert. Vayelchu, Chana, they went. They went, they went for three days in the desert and they did not find water. Let's put some perspective to their fetching, okay? Let us all agree that water in the wilderness is an important need, okay? So what's going to happen, and this is the learning period that the people have to go through, their need was valid. Their need was valid. And, and Hashem, was, Hashem was almost testing the people what is the nth degree that I could push it till? One day, two days, three days with no water? Come on. They didn't start complaining, when are we going to get there? How my feet hurt? Right? They didn't start right away. Three days with no water, with their children, with their cattle. You know, how many times do they say, I could put up with this, but I have people in my charge that can't manage? Three days is a very, very, very long time. So, A, they held, up, they held out for a very long time. And I think, Lila, the bigger problem was they didn't come to Moshe. They didn't send a delegation to Moshe and say, um, Moshe, wh- when's the rest stop? Where did, where's the watering hole? They came and they complained. Now, did they really think Hashem took them to the desert and said, oh, I knew I forgot something. I forgot to provide for water. Like, do they really think that was going on? At the same time, we have to sort of put their behavior into perspective. They, they weren't, they sound very, very crutchy. But ladies, how many times do we crutch? For lesser things. More, 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 you know, with more attitude, right? Like, put it into perspective. Yes, they left Egypt. Yes, they were slaves. Yes, they saw amazing miracles. And, and this is going to be one of the things that Chazidus talks about. When you are bombarded with miracles, and then you're asked to live a regular life, you do not know how to do that. And that's why we're going to find that the first Parsha that starts talking about living with the Geula that they were given is very hard for them. It's very, very hard for them because they're used to, you know, the water turns to blood and the animals show up here and the, the frogs come here and the locusts throw here with this, but the sea, like they're used to, that's their norm. That is their norm. Well, we would look and say, oh my gosh, hectic, hectic, hectic. That was their norm. So then they're like, okay, where's the miracle? We have no water. Like they're expecting something like... Chucks of I don't know, yeah. You know, bayaded uh, water goes, comes throwing down of their head. Like what, how is this going to happen? And so the, the problem, and this is their learning that they're going to have to do, is that they are going to have to learn how do we ask correctly. And there are some, there are more, some more modern commentaries who talk about the idea of the crossing of the sea as a birth. It's actually like a birth. Huh? Rebirth. Well, not a rebirth, but actually they talk about it, the birth of the Jewish nation. And so at this point, they're a bunch of little kids. Interesting. You know? Wouldn't they have brought water with them when they left? Three days, there's there's three million, there's three million people and animals. Egypt into a desert, I would have brought a lot of water. But but a lot of everything, I I want to say everything. You would have been a little distracted. (laughs) (laughs) I want to just say something, Amber. The question is, how much could you prepare? I'll tell you, we're going to go, skip for a second, okay? The people are in, it's a month after the people leave Egypt. They come to Moshe, they ran out of food. Okay, how typically Jewish is that? We're going on a three-day excursion to serve Hashem. They end up with food for 61 meals. In case you wonder why we overpack all the time, that's why. We get it honestly. It's in our DNA. There's nothing to do about it. We get it honestly, okay? You're like always, does anybody remember Gilligan's Island? They went on a three-hour cruise and they had like clothes to change for five years of shows. Like, I don't know how that worked, but whatever. Um, Okay, so 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 we're gonna get to, we're gonna get to the we're, we're gonna get to that in a second. But they came with a lot of provisions, but everything runs out at a certain point. Everything's gonna run out. Okay, anyway, so they go to this place, and um, the water is undrinkable. They find so after three days, they get to this place. The place is undrinkable. The water is undrinkable. So Moshe, Hashem says to Moshe, "Take the stick, put it into the water, and it's gonna be and it's gonna become drinkable." And Rav Tversky talks about the idea that in Hebrew, certain uh, pronouns are kind of like indistinct. So he says that um, they came to Mara and they couldn't drink the water because they were bitter. 
And Rabbi Torsky says, because they were bitter. Not because they, the water. Because they, the people, were bitter. They were in such a bad headspace, they couldn't see that there was a gift given to them, and therefore they physically could not drink the water. Because what does Moshe do? He takes a stick, puts it into the water, and now they're able to drink it. Right? So that it's like the appearance of a miracle. It is, is going to be a miracle, I mean, but, a miracle, but there is a place... There is a place, and this is what Rabbi Torsky talks about. How many times are we faced with something life-giving and we are in such a bad place that we can't see it? And it takes almost somebody to, I don't want to say slay of hand. So it was but a placebo miracle. Maybe. like a, it, it was a miracle, but for them it was a placebo because maybe the water was never bitter. It was just, Rabbi Torsky yeah, talks about, it was... Yeah, they were hangry. They were hangry. They finally get to the water, they can't drink it. So, so he talks about that a lot, that, that our perception of an event helps create that event. And when people came and they were not in a good place, they were bitter, therefore it actually affected their surroundings. And that's just, again, something for us to be aware of. Okay, and then they go into, they get a lot of laws in Mara. They get Shabbos and they get uh, civil laws. There's all different kinds of conversations in Gemara. What mitzvahs did they get? They get Chok Mishpat, which mitzvahs is it, which is that. This is a whole long conversation. They get a lot of mitzvahs over there. Then they go to another place and there there's 12, uh, 12 um, sp- springs of water and there's palm, 70 palm, um, date palm things like an oasis. Okay. And then they go. Okay, so it's, it's, a, it's a month after they left, and now they say to Moshe, they complain again. We're hungry. We're hungry. <laughs> we have nothing to eat. Now, the, the Rashi and the Mepharshim separate between their two, their two requests. When they say that they have no bread, that's a legitimate request. But when they say they have no meat, and we want to go back to Egypt, where everything was so available, and it was so, whatever, so that's, not really a, that's really not a legitimate request. First of all, because you don't need meat. And second of all, they had a lot of cattle with them. They had animals with them. They could have. They could. They could have used their own animals, but they didn't want to. They didn't want to. The 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 the, the sages talk about the idea that in the desert, and it's not going to be relevant yet because they don't have a base. They don't have a mishkan yet. They don't have a tabernacle. But in the desert, you could not eat what's called basar taiva. You couldn't just stomp eat meat. You could only bring a carbon and have part of that be left for you to eat. Okay, so they don't want to bring a carbon. Mm. They want birds, which are, have very specific, quail are specific birds that actually cannot ever be brought as uh, the slug that they want is actually not eligible for a carbon, so you can actually eat it. And Hashem re- responds, and um, uh, Hashem tells them, I'm going to get Hashem to Maisha to tell the people, we're in 16, verse 4, and 5, and 6. Um, uh, that that um, they um, that Hashem is going to give them bread from heaven, and what we're going to find here, and the people are going to the people are going to gather it every day, and then Hashem says also on the on the sixth day they're going to get a double portion, and a lot of the laws of Shabbos we actually get from their interaction when the what with this stuff, and what happens is is that. And Moshe is slightly faulted for this. He doesn't actually give over all that information to the people. So the next day when they wake up and they see this stuff on the floor, they say, manhu, they say, manhu, what is it? And that becomes the mana. So they didn't know about it. And the same thing is going to happen when they, on the sixth day, when they, it's, uh, the Medrash tells us that they, the month started to fall on Sunday morning. And then Friday when they came home and they found they had a double portion, they freaked out and they went to Moshe because they already know you can't save any of this over. You have to eat it all that day. And then he says, oh, Shabbos, Lachabishna, you're going to have two. So a lot of the laws that we have with Shabbos are going to be intertwined with man. Um, is that why having two challahs? That's why we have two challahs. That's why we have something under the challah and over the challah. Because that's how the man fell. It fell on a layer of dew and covered with a layer of dew. So a lot of the stuff that goes with the, with the man, uh, we have for Shabbos. The Talmud tells us, that the tire could only be given to the people who ate the man. And um, it was a very hard existence. How many times do we come home and we say, there's nothing to eat in this house. 
right? So my husband's a child of survivors. You can't say that in the house of survivors. Like, there's lots of food in this house. You don't like the food. You have to prepare the food. You have to do something with it. Don't say there's no food in this house. But in the desert, there was no food in the house at the end of the day. You could not save the man. The Torah talks about the idea that some people saved over their man to the next day, and they, it got all wormy. You could not save it. You went to sleep at night. There was nothing in the house. Nothing. And you had to believe and you had to trust that in the morning it was going to come back and there was going to be something for you to eat. The other thing about the mud, which the Medjus talks about, because there's different words to describe the mud and da-da-da. We know that the worst thing to do when you're on a diet is to weigh yourself every single day because then you just make yourself crazy. The mud came every day and they knew exactly where they were standing in their relationship with God. If they opened their door and it was at their doorstep, Sadik, if they had to go a little further, then that was something else. And if it was out in the fields, hmm, you know, they used the man to settle disputes. If somebody said, I own this, this slave is mine. I don't know where they got slaves. This is what the, the Gemara says. This slave is mine. And the other person says, no, you sold it to me. Well, they would wait for the morning and see where the portion of man for the slave would fall. Whose house was it closer to? <laughs> you, you know, if you think you could fool God, you really can't fool God. But could you imagine every single day, you know exactly where you stand in your relationship with Hashem. Did I, was I kidding myself yesterday? The proof is right there. It's like, <laughs> it's right there. There's nothing to, like, you can't fake this. Hashem's going to give it to you exactly where you are. And to be able to live with that, I mean, I hear, I hear that and it's like, <gasps> I can't even breathe. I can't even breathe with that kind of scrutiny. Like, it, 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 it freaks me out. But to be able to live and to be okay in that space is an incredible, incredible place of amuna and bitach and understanding this is exactly where I'm supposed to be and this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing and this is where I am, right? And this is what, what's supposed to be happening. Um, it's really hard. It's really, really hard. Um, one of the interesting things about the man is that it had no waste, okay? It's food from heaven. It's lechem and hashamayim. So most of what we have in our food is waste. It's not something that we can use in our body and give us nourishment. So in different stages of the process, whether it's in the, the growing, the grinding, the eating, there's lots of waste. So which, you know, if you have three million people on a 40-year trek in the desert and you don't have to make bathroom breaks, that's definitely helpful. It did freak the people out. Wait, like it literally... Yeah, 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 no yeah, yeah. There was no waste. They didn't go to the bathroom? Correct. That's what the measure says. He did not go to the bathroom for the 40 years, which was a little freaky to the also people. What? Yeah. It got absorbed. I'm just telling you. First of all, remember, not drinking regular water. We're going to get it soon. They're getting, uh, they're getting a well from Miriam. They're having miraculous water. They have, we're going to get it in this portion. What does man translate Okay, man. Uh, so mana literally means a portion. The mana literally means a portion. The, of course, how much was a portion of mana? So the, well, it was an omer. An omer is a third of an eighth. Omer, like counting? Like counting the omer. We count the omer because it was a, a measurement of grain that was brought. Most opinions put the omer as between, I think, one and a half, between one and a half and almost 1.4 something and 1.7 something kilos what? per person per day. That's a lot. It's a lot. It's was a it lot. The same if it was like a baby? Everybody got the same. Everybody got the same, which is like, what's going on over here? So now, the other thing we talk about the mud is that it's, it, um, it, it wasn't like bread. It was, the Torah describes it as the shape of coriander seeds, but they were like crystal. And some of them, first, talk about the idea that it was, it didn't have texture. It didn't have chewing factor. It was like, not sweet cotton candy. I'm making this up. This is my, like, it didn't have texture, but basically you would, you would swallow it. You, it. you didn't chew the mun. It was, it had, it could taste like almost everything. It, I don't know that it had smell, but it could taste like almost everything. But if you talk about the eating experience, it's really missing. You know, there's no visual, there's no sizzle, there's no, there's no smell. So you're getting it, but you're not, Getting it. When I was younger, I always imagined it like porridge. 
Yeah. It's not, but it's not. Okay, it's definitely clear. It's described it's not as hard. And, and so, so and, and the thing is, another interesting thing about that was another interesting thing about the mun is that whatever was not collected melted, and it ran into the rivers, and the the animals would drink it. And when people would hunt the animals, they could taste the difference. And they're like, oh, they, the Ooh. the neighboring, the people around wherever the Jews were camping knew that the animals that had drunk from the water, that was the melted manna. Um, Belinda, to answer your question of like, clearly a, a 45-year-old male and a six-month-old baby do not have the same nutritional needs, the man is lechem min hashamayim. It is, in, in fact, some of them, in the Gemara, they talk about the idea that the bracha that they made on the man, even though, I don't know how that worked because it didn't have brachas then, but was hamaitzi lechem min hashamayim, that you bring, who brings forth from, bread from the heaven. It's not, it's a physical manifestation of something spiritual. It's spiritual food, and it fed the people. A, it nourished them, but it fed them with amuna. And the amount of amuna that we all need is the same no matter who we are or what we are. And it's going to be acclimated, that's not the right word, into our body. What's the word like? Digested. Digested, integrated, like it go absorbed. Thank you. Thank you. It's going to be absorbed into our body. Yes, it's going to nourish us in all of our limbs, but it's also going to be... Um, but it's also going to be, um, it's going to nourish us, but it's also going to feed us with an incredible amount of faith. And to be able to live with that level of woe is really very hard. I saw somebody, you know, wrote in, in the name of the Rebbe that um, the idea of lo- that you can't, that the Torah was only given to Ochle Haman also refers to us today because we don't have the man. We talk, the Torah talks about the idea that Moshe should, Hashem told Moshe to tell Aaron to take a portion of mud and put it away. And in the future, when, she, when people are not going to believe that this happened, they'll take it out and they'll show it. We don't have mud today. It happened. It happened in the times of the kings, with the split of, split of the kingdoms. It happened. But um, we don't have mud today. So they talk about the idea that, um, and he's quoting from the Rebbe, but he didn't like to give an exact quote, that um, the Torah is only given to the people who eat the mun. And what was the property of the mun that we know? Is that it had no waste. And if we can look at Torah and understand that Torah min hashamayim, Torah has no waste. There's no word, no letter, no concept, no story that is extraneous that just should be trashed. If we don't get it, then it's our place to look for it. If we can look at Torah and understand every single letter of this Torah is absorbable to us, that is like us eating the man. And then we're able to engage with Tyra in a true, um, in a real authentic way to really, um, to really be able to be there, uh, to be there and to learn Tyra authentically. This, sorry, one of the other stories that talks about the man is that the first Shabbos, it says that some people went to look for man and they didn't find any. And the Medrash says that Dustin and Aviram, our old friends, we've met them multiple times already, um, the first day when Moshe said, don't leave any man over, they kept the man, and it turned wormy. The second day, when they had, sorry, on the sixth day, when they got the double portion, and he said, put it away, it's for Shabbos, blah, 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 they're like, we're going to prove that Moshe's a liar. And they took their portions of man, and they went out to the field, and they sprinkled it out in the field, and in the morning, they came to the people, and they said, ha, 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 Moshe's a liar, look, there's really man in the fields. And they got the people, and they all went back, and the birds had all come and eaten up the man. So there is a custom this Shabbos. The Shabbos, first of all, has a special name. It's called Shabbos Shira, the Shabbos of song, um, because we have two Shiras listed here. And it's also, on Shabbos Shira, there's also a, one of those Jewish customs that we put out food for the birds uh, to thank them for helping Moshe not, you know, to sort of not be made to look foolish. Um, just an interesting fact is that when we were kids, um, my mother always used to cook up like buckwheat and put it out. And we lived in New York, and it used to freeze. And I never understood what was the point of putting on food for the birds that was going to freeze solid. They eat the kasha raw. They don't, you don't need to cook it for them. That's what I learned as I got older. They don't need to cook it up and make it edible. No the seeds, the seeds, is, they're eating all this. So there is, there are, first of all, there are birds all over the place. There are birds all over the place, especially in New York. Are you allowed to feed the birds on Shabbos? You are not allowed to feed them on Shabbos. You can put it out before Shabbos. Okay. okay? Quick halachic fact. So if anybody wants to feed the birds, this would be the Shabbos to do it. And this is also called the Shabbos Shira because we have the two Shiras in the Parsha. We have the Shira in the Haftorah, so that's the Shabbos of song. The last thing that we have after here, after the Mun, we have 
that um, it's always interesting. Terry describes the man as I have to say when I read, when I read this description, it does not sound yummy to me. I'm going to be quite honest here. Um, it's in 1631. It's, uh, it's they so the people call it man. gad. It's like a coriander seed, lavan, uh, white. On some versions say crystal. Vitamo kitsapita something fried in honey. Yeah, no. So so that's what how Tari describes it. The Medrash talks about that the mun could taste like anything that you wanted to taste like, except there were certain foods that it could not taste like. Garlic and onion, there was a couple of things it couldn't taste like. Um, but that it didn't have the texture of any of the stuff. So I mean I can't I, I don't know. It that, I'm sure it was lovely, and I'm sure it was delicious. It seems a little... I could, wouldn't be able to deal with that. But I wasn't, being, I wasn't asked to deal with it, so I guess that's a good thing. Um, after we have this whole situation with the Mun, in chapter 17, um, they have no water. They complain to Moshe. And again, there's still this disconnect between... When you're complaining to Moshe, you're complaining to Hashem. You know, I think that that's one of the things that we, you know, that we see. They keep complaining to Moshe or to Moshe and Aaron. And Moshe keeps saying, it's not about me. I didn't take you out of Egypt. I did not give, like, it's Hashem. Like, do you understand that when you complain, you're complaining to Hashem, which Amber would give way to what you're saying. You just saw all these miracles from Hashem. If there's a place that they can disconnect between Moshe and the events that are happening and Hashem who saved them, well, then they feel legitimate to complain to Moshe. And Moshe's like, it's all one package. It's all one, it's all one thing together. I, I'm not doing this on my own, but they don't, uh, they complain and they, they, don't, they don't have any water. And Hashem says to Moshe, and it's going to be very, here's a foreshadowing. Hashem's going to tell him, uh, take, this, take your staff with you and go to wherever, to the side, and uh, go to the rock. And what should you do with the rock? Hit, Hit the rock. Hit the rock. In the beginning, at this point, Moshe is told, go hit the rock and water is going to come out. And he does it and the water comes out. It's, Stella, your point is well taken because at the end of 40 years, after Miriam passes away and there is no more water, and Hashem says, go take your stick and talk to the rock, that's a setup. Yeah. That's a setup. I just want to say, that's a setup. But uh, yeah, so he was supposed to, whatever. So, that, so here he's told, go hit the rock and water comes out of the rock. Um, and the Medrash tells us that every single tribe of the tribes would whenever the first of all this rock went with them so it was not exactly tapping into some underground source of water was this the rock he smashed or just he did he just hit the he hit the rock and the water came out and the each tribe would take their staff and they would draw a line from the rock to where their camp to where their tribe was was encamped and it would make like a canal and that's how the people got water i'm not making this up i promise you i'm not making this up this is also by the way the water that the women used to title in where are you going to get water in the desert to go to the mikvah? So this is where the water was. There's a whole conversation about... I saw an obscure conversation about Moshe using... The, his staff was made of sapphire, and sapphire could become tummin. He was making... like for he was, The women weren't able to use the water for it. Um, so this is what's going on. Um, and the last thing that happens over here is Amalek. The people are in Rafidim, they have their situation, they get their water, and then Amalek comes to attack. Um, and, and, the, and Rashi, and we're going to finish with this, but Rashi, Rashi describes Amalek as the Jewish people are like a boiling hot bathtub of water. And Amalek says, it's like a person who will jump into that bathtub. They will get burnt incredibly, but it'll be easier for the next person to go in. So Amalek, the attitude is, what's the big deal? Doesn't matter. It's not so impressive. What are you so excited about? Just relax a little bit. Just chill a little bit. We're going to, to take that place. The Jews were like a boiling hot bath of water. They were so on fire to Hashem. And Amalek's like, they're not invincible. We could fight them. They're going to lose terribly. But the next people who want to come and fight them will be less afraid. Um, and in our service of Hashem, one of the things that we have is that Amalek and Safik, doubt, have the same numerical val- the same numerical value. Out. Out. No. Doubt. 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 Not gout. Doubt. <laughs> that wouldn't help us today. Just need someone. Doubt. Okay. Suffolk. To, to, to doubt. And, and the doubt. place of Amalek does not come to you with intellectual proof and say you're wrong. It's just like, who cares? What are you so excited about? 
Why are you so heated up about the situation? Just relax a little bit. It's all fine. You'll get over this. Wait, you know, go back home and everything will pass. All this enthusiasm that you had from your learning Torah is going to all pass. So I want to give us a bracha that this week is Shabbos Shira. It's a Shabbos of song. We sing when we are happy. We sing when we are uplifted. We sing when we are waiting. All of those things that are where we are, we're happy, we're uplifted, we're waiting for Mashiach. Um, we should understand that it's easy to look back at people who struggled with their freedom and say, but we would have done it differently. And the question is, I guess my bracha is that we should, we should do it differently. We sometimes, when we're in the moment and it's hard to realize that this is in fact this is life-giving in front of us. This is good for us. This is how I should... And sometimes we end up just stepping back into that place that we said, oh, we would never do that. So I want to give us a bracha to appreciate and to see the life-giving water that's in front of us, the opportunities that we have to step into them from a place of simcha, from a place of joy, from a place of shira, of song, and to be able to really live the geula in the... To be ready to live the geula and to live the geula already now in a way that's sing, dance, and, and, and play your instruments about it. L'chaim, have a great rest of the day.